0: What we have before us today is what we might call a wonderful summary of the life that God has called us to. And I want to give this to you in three statements. This will sort of be our outline for today, that God has called us to live like sojourners, that's first, to fight like soldiers, that's second, and to behave like representatives. That's third. Notice verse 11 again. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. And I really want to encourage you to not skip over that word beloved. Sometimes it's easy to do that, you know, to to skip over words like that. But this word has great meaning. It means greatly loved of God. That's how God sees you. God looks at you who are in Christ and he loves you. You are beloved. You are greatly loved by God. So he says, beloved as sojourners and pilgrims. Now that word sojourners literally means alongside the house. You see, you and I live alongside people who make this world their home. It's not our home. But we live alongside people who have made this world their home. It was Warren Wiersbe, a great Bible commentator, who said this, A vagabond has no home, a fugitive is running from home, a stranger is away from home, and a pilgrim is heading home. And Peter says here that we are sojourners and pilgrims. We are those who are on a journey, but we're going somewhere. We're heading home. This world's not our home. Heaven is our home. Heaven is our, our destiny. And so we are those who are heading home. But as sojourners, we are living as alongside people who have made this place their home. So as pilgrims and sojourners, these are two words that capture the way you and I are to relate to people in this present world. You see, if you truly believe that this world is not your home, if you truly believe that eternity is real, if you truly believe in forever, if you truly believe that later is longer, that belief is going to affect the way that you live it's going to affect the way that you interact with people around you you see here's what happens when you embrace your calling as a sojourner and a pilgrim your pursuits change your priorities change your perspectives changed because everything gets viewed in light of eternity Everything gets viewed in light of this reality, that everything that we can see, everything that is, that is right in front of us, we could say is temporary. I mean, you fill in the blank, the car, the house, whatever it might be, it's temporary, but people are eternal. And when we embrace that mindset, it shapes the way that you live. It shapes the way that you interact with the people around you. You know, when my wife and I first got married and we would go on a trip somewhere, when we arrived at the hotel, my practice was always, it still is, is to unpack my suitcase. I want everything out of the suitcase. I put all my clothes in drawers. I hang my, my, uh, clo- my shirts up in the closet. And the reason why I do that is because You know, I want to be organized, and so for me to be able to be organized, I have to get everything out of the suitcase, but I think there's another reason, kind of an underlying reason why I do that, and it's because wherever we go, there's this thing inside of me that I want wherever we're visiting to feel as much like home as possible. So I take everything out of the suitcase, I put it in the dresser, I hang up my, my shirts because I want it to feel as much like home. My wife, on the other hand, would often leave her stuff in her suitcase. And I would say to her, aren't you going to unpack? And she'd say, why? We're just here for a day. We're just here for two. You know, this is temporary. Now, when it comes to staying at a hotel somewhere, There's not a right and wrong approach as it relates to unpacking or not unpacking. But when it comes to living in this world, I would say my wife has the more biblical approach is that she's recognizing, yeah, I'm not going to get too comfortable here because this isn't home. This is temporary. This is a temporary dwelling place. And this is what Peter is saying here that we are pilgrims and sojourners here, that life is a journey, that life is a passage, that this isn't home, but home is coming. And, folks, this is one of the reasons why I think that we can often wrestle with these feelings of discontentment in this life. I mean, have you ever had this happen? You go on a vacation... And you have an amazing time. Maybe you're fortunate enough to go to some amazing place like, like Hawaii. And you have this incredible time while you're there. But then you come home after this amazing week. And instead of your heart being full of just great gratitude, you start wrestling with these feelings of discontentment. And you find yourself thinking, as great as that was, I wonder what this would have been like. Maybe you see you know, somebody else post a picture of where they went. Went on vacation and you find yourself thinking you know i wish we would have been went there that looked really really amazing does anybody else do that but me please raise your hand <laughs> so i know i'm now the fact that we do that doesn't mean that we're evil it's actually quite normal you see the bible tells us that god has placed eternity in each one of our hearts and I think what that means is that God is placed in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit, I think, is nudging us toward this direction and toward this reality all the time, that God has placed this reality in our hearts that this is not it. This place, this planet, what we experience in this life, this isn't it. Or maybe you've had this experience. You go on a retreat, a Christian retreat and you have an incredible time I and mean, god meets you there in an amazing way pours out his spirit you just sense like god's presence with you in that in that time or, or maybe It happens like a couple weeks ago at our magnifying night, our worship night that we had. That was just absolutely amazing. And all over the room, I mentioned this last week, people were crying. And it wasn't because it was tears of joy. It was tears of just a sense of God's presence meeting us here in just such a powerful way. But have you ever had this happen? After an encounter like that, a really special time with God like that, that you wake up the next day and you find in your heart you're wrestling all over again. You're wrestling with this sense of of discontentment and and this sense of of just, you know, like, oh, I just don't feel like, you know, I don't feel right. Well, why does that happen? I think that it's the Holy Spirit's way of nudging your heart toward this reality that as awesome as that experience was, this is not heaven. It's a taste of what's to come. And the Lord is always wanting us to understand the best is yet to come. So He gives us this taste, you know? It's like I come home one day, I walk in the door. And I love when I walk in the door and I smell this aroma the fresh aroma, or the aroma of fresh baked goods. And I know my wife's been baking. So I make my way into the kitchen and there it is a nice big batch of cookies that she has just been you know making and I get all excited I have a sweet tooth and and uh, she hands me one and she says here you can have one and I take it, and I eat it, and oh, it's just so wonderful. But she says, you can't have any more, because we're going to this thing tonight. You know, we're going to someone's house. That's why I made this. And you can have some more when we get there. You can have some more later. And later, in my mind, always means as soon as she walks out of the room. <laughs> then I'm going to have some more, you know, and I move them around on the plate so she doesn't know. But... Uh, But the whole time while we're waiting, you know, through the the rest of whatever has to happen and then the drive over there and maybe the dinner that takes place, I'm waiting with this sort of discontent expectancy that I'm knowing the best is yet to come. There's some great cookies that I'm going to have after this. I mean, sometimes I'll even not eat as much dinner so I can have some more cookies. You know, um, but but that's the sense of what Peter's wanting us to realize. I think the Lord is always moving us in that direction all the time. He's moving and working in our hearts to say, "Hey, this isn't it." As great as this might be, as great of an experience that you might have had, this isn't it. The best is yet to come. In fact, let me hear you say that. The best is yet to come. So Peter says, "You're pilgrims here, you're sojourners here, and your discontentment is normal because I don't want you to get comfortable here. But here's what we need to realize. We need to realize that everyone around us who doesn't know Jesus, is also wrestling with that discontentment all the time. They sense that in their hearts, that this isn't it. But the problem is, is they don't know where to turn. They don't know where to go, and so they keep searching for contentment and satisfaction in places and in pleasures, and in pursuits, and in people, in relationships. But no matter where they turn, nothing brings them that lasting contentment, that lasting satisfaction that they're longing for. They keep coming up empty. And they can relate to what Mick Jagger used to sing. I think he still sings it, sort of. But he used to sing that song, The Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Remember how it goes? He says, I try and I try and I try and I try, right? But I can't get no satisfaction. And that's what people realize. Without Jesus, they're struggling and they're realizing, hey, I, I, I can't find it. But we know the answer is in Jesus. The answer is in the reality of heaven. The answer is in the reality that later is longer, that eternity is real. And so Peter says we need to live like pilgrims and sojourners, but as we do, we're coming alongside other travelers, others who are on this journey, people that, that don't know Jesus, and they see us living in the freedom of Jesus because we're not so attached to the things of this life, and we're not so tied down by these things because as Christ followers, we understand that things are temporary and people are eternal. You know, there's this saying... You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You ever heard that before? Well, how do you do that? How do you send it ahead? Well, you send it ahead by investing in things that are eternal. And one of the things that are eternal is people. Now, here's the thing. Living as pilgrims and sojourners is easier said than done. Because every single day, we all are fighting all the time in our responsibilities and the things that we have in this life. Everything is always pulling us downward or earthward. We're, we're always, you know, wrestling in that way. So what Peter says next to us is vitally important to understand. This is the, the second mentality he wants us to have is that we would fight like soldiers. Look at our text again. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Here's what he's telling us. We're in a war. It was, again, Warren Wearsby who said, this life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And the sooner that we realize that, the better. You see, we cannot live with a peacetime mentality because the war still goes on. We're in a war. And the war that we are in, there's really a threefold aspect to it. The Bible says that we fight against the world, our flesh, and the devil. That's who our battle is with. Now, what's interesting is you take any one out of that equation and things get a lot easier. Like, for instance, if we take, it's us, in these fleshly bodies, we're living in this world, but there's no devil, well, suddenly there's no tempter, right? That's easier. Or let's take us in these bodies, and we have the devil, but we're not here on earth, we're out in space, and we're just kind of floating around. Again, there's nothing to tempt us with. But it's the fact that we are living in this world, in these bodies, and there is a devil. Those are the three components of the battle that we find ourselves in. And the devil uses the things of this world to appeal to our flesh. It's always been that way. That's how it was in the garden. He comes to Eve there in the garden, and he tempts her. He says, look at that fruit. It's the fruit she's not supposed to eat. It's forbidden. But he says, look at that. Doesn't that look good? And it says in, the, in Genesis chapter 3 that Eve looked at it and it was desirable to her eyes. She was like, yeah, right, it looks good. Yeah, I want to have some of that. And that's how he always tempts us. He's always appealing to our flesh. Now, Peter says that we're to abstain from fleshly lust. In the ESV version, it says, the passions of the flesh that war against the soul. What's a passion? A passion is a powerfully motivating, emotionally laden desire. You see, there is a war of desire that is being fought on the turf of your heart, and its fight is for the control of your soul. That's the purpose of war. What's the purpose of war? It's winning. And what's winning? Control. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul put it this way, that we are in a battle, he says, the flesh and the spirit, they're at war with one another. They battle against one another. It reminds me of the man who had these two dogs that were always fighting. And somebody said, well, which dog usually wins? And he says, it's the one that I feed the most. Well, Paul says, hey, the flesh and the spirit, they're at war with one another. Which one's going to win? The one that you feed the most. Are you feeding your flesh or are you feeding your spirit? So we live in this world of seduction. We live in this world of temptation. We live in this world where there's, there's these seductive voices and those temptations that are always daily vying for our affections, vying for our attention. And the devil will even appeal to good desires to tempt us to indulge them in ways that are unnatural. I'll give you a couple of examples. Let's take the desire for food. We all have that desire. We've been built with that desire for food. Some of you right now have a desire for food. You're like, I hope Pastor Rob doesn't go too long. I'm hungry. It's lunchtime after this. And so we have that desire. We, you know, crave. Some of you guys are maybe like, oh, I hope the steak is good tonight. You know, it's going to be. I love the fact in Acts chapter 10 that Peter sees that vision, the sheet comes down and all these animals on it, and God says, kill and eat. So it's biblical. You can eat meat. Like, go for it, you know? And I love that. We have this desire, but here's what happens. We take this natural desire for food and we indulge ourselves. We overindulge ourselves. And that becomes gluttony, which is a sin. And suddenly we find ourselves being controlled by our appetites. Something that was good desire, but we get tempted to take it to the unnatural extreme. Or what about this one? We we have God gives us this desire for sex. He's built us. He's made us to crave that type of affection. And he made the sexual relationship or sexual intimacy to be a beautiful, wonderful thing in the marriage relationship. If you doubt that at all, read the book of Song of Solomon. It's so much of it is a beautiful picture of of what God desires the relationship sexually and intimately to be between a husband and a wife. But the thing is, is that relationship, that wonderful thing that God has made is only to be enjoyed in the realm of marriage the bible tells us that we're to keep the the marriage bed pure to keep it holy but also to keep it active to not deprive one another first corinthians chapter 7 but here's what satan does satan and the symptoms of this world has sought to demean sexual intimacy so now we live in the day and age of the casual hookups no strings attached Sexual intimacy is something that just people do randomly with whoever. And we live in the day and age of of self-sex and pornography and all of that. And here's what God says, though. God says that those who commit sexual immorality, they actually sin against their own bodies. It's like the giving away a part of yourself that you will never, ever get back again. It's like the peeling of an onion to the point where there's nothing else That is left. And it controls people. So we have people today that are sex addicts and who are controlled by these passions. The author Paul Tripp put it this way. He says, A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing because our hearts must only be ruled by King Jesus. Take the desire to be productive. Productive. It's a God-given desire. God made man with a work ethic, a sense to want to be able to work hard, but we get tempted to cut corners, to cross lines, to get ahead, and we end up being in bondage then to greed and bondage into, you know, this, this, these lies to cover up our behavior. You know, the desire to have a clean house. It's a good desire. But it's something that can rule you when it gets to the point where your family doesn't even want to be home because, you know, mom or dad gets so upset when things start to get messed up. And so it rules them. Even ministry, serving Jesus, a great desire unless it becomes the ruling thing where you're finding your identity in what you're doing for Jesus rather than in your relationship with Jesus and who you are in Jesus. And If you're finding your identity for what you're doing for Jesus, that's a problem. And so there's all these things that the enemy is constantly wanting to appeal to our flesh, good things, but he wants us to take it to the unnatural place. And so Peter says, we need to fight like a soldier. We need to realize that we are in a battle and we need to fight to keep the main thing, the main thing to keep Jesus front and center in our life. Paul put it this way. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul says, hey, we got to endure hardship because why? It's part of war. You go to war, you're in the army, you're in the navy, you're in the marine corps, you're in the the air force, you're in the armed forces, you're going to encounter hardship. Why? It's part of war. The Bible says that we're in a war. And we're not to get ourselves entangled with the things of this life. Why? Because in this battle, we want to please our general. We want to please the one who's enlisted us, and that's, that's King Jesus. And so we need to be aware that we're in a battle. We need to be on guard. I was talking to my staff about this, this past week, where Paul says that we are to not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. And what that means, a couple of things that that means, one is that we need to understand how he operates. That the same way that he came against Eve in the garden and got her to doubt God's word and doubt God's heart, it's the same way that he attacked Jesus when he tempted him out in the wilderness. But that also means this, when he says, don't be ignorant of the schemes of the devil, it means that you need to understand where you're weak, where you're vulnerable where the enemy is going to want to seek to attack you. Because Paul said this in First Thessalonians chapter 4, that every man should know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, in sanctification and honor. And you see, the enemy loves to attack us where we're weak. That's his frontal attack. He goes at your weak spots. Think of it this way. If I'm a football coach, and I'm playing against another team, and I find out that On their front defensive line on the left side, all three of their players are third string. Their first and second stringers are hurt and out. Guess where I'm going to run every single, you know, all day long? I'm going to run left. I'm going to run right at those guys. Why? Because it's their it's their weak spot. That's what the devil does. That's his frontal attack in your life as he seeks to come against the areas where he knows that you're weak and where he knows that you're vulnerable. But he also has a backdoor strategy. You know what his backdoor strategy is? It's to come in the areas where you're strong. You know why? Because oftentimes in the areas where we're strong, we drop our guard. That's why it's been said that a strength can be a double weakness, because we drop our guard. And so he's always looking, he's always watching for those areas in our lives when we, you know, drop our guard and he can get in the back door. And so Paul says, hey, don't be ignorant of his schemes. We always need to be aware that we are in a battle so we can fight like soldiers. Now the third mentality that Peter wants us to have is that we need to behave like representatives. Look at verse 12 again. He says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. He says that we're to behave like representatives of Jesus Christ, having an honorable conduct among the Gentiles. That's the unbelievers. That word honorable means praiseworthy or beautiful. The key phrase, though, in that verse is the word among. Circle that if you like to write in your Bible. That word among, having an honorable conduct, is, is among them. The word among means in company of. So the Lord is saying to us, you are pilgrims. This world is not your home. You're heading home. But you're also sojourners, which means you're living among the house. You're living among, alongside, you're traveling alongside those who believe that this world is their home. But you're living among them, Jesus says, as a representation of me. It's the old adage that we're to be in the world but not of the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. We're not caught up in the practices of it. Jesus said that we are salt and light. We're to be salt and light. And he says the light has to be seen. It's your witness. It's you you shining for the Lord. He says, you don't take a light and put a basket over it that you don't cover it up. No, you want it to shine. He says, you are light. You're the light of the world. But he also said, you're the salt of the earth. And again, the idea of salt is that it's got to be, it's got to permeate whatever it's going to affect. You take that salt on the salt shaker and the salt shaker sitting there on the table. It doesn't do any good. Until so you take it and you put some on your steak, like we're going to do tonight. <laughs> you put some on the steak. It's got to permeate. It's got to touch. And that's what he's saying. Hey, you're the light, light of the world. You guys need to be seen, but you also need to touch. You need to rub shoulders with the people that you're living among that don't know me if you're going to represent me among them. So when you are in the company of unbelievers and you behave in a praiseworthy way, a way that reflects Jesus and honors Jesus, something happens to them. In fact, I love the way the message puts this. It says, live an exemplary life among the unbelievers so that your actions will refute their prejudices. And that's exactly what Peter has in mind here. You see, unbelievers have prejudices and preconceived ideas about Christians. And so when they see Christians who who don't represent Jesus, it just solidifies these preconceived ideas that they have. When they see Christians acting in a way that doesn't really represent the Lord, it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly. Or oftentimes they have a view of God that is a distorted view of God. They think God is mean and God hates them. And so when they see Christians acting that way, it just solidifies the way they think of God. But you know what? The opposite is also true. When we live in such a way that honors Jesus and reflects Jesus, And we get close enough to them that they get a chance to see what we're really, really like. And through that, they get a chance to see what Jesus is really like. It affects them. It changes their whole outlook. And this is exactly what Peter is talking about here. He's saying, you are sojourning alongside unbelievers, people who are attached to this world, but you're living as like someone who's not committed you know, to this world, but you're committed to another world. You're living like someone who knows that it's souls that matter, that eternities are hanging in the balance. And when you're living as someone who's concerned for others and loving others, others and being there for others something happens their whole perspective changes in fact there's a transformation I don't know if you caught this that happens in the text that's implied here notice it says when they speak against you as evildoers they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation so here's what he's saying they start off with their prejudices They start off with their preconceived ideas of what a Christian is like. They start off speaking evil of you, but when they get a chance, they get to know you, and they see your works, something changes, and they actually get saved. That's actually what's being implied here when it says that they glorify God in the day of visitation, because you know what? Unbelievers don't glorify God. Believers do. And Peter is implying here that your conduct among unbelievers can have a transforming effect on their lives, and they go from being those that speak against the church then those who are speaking in favor of Jesus and his people. And they get saved, and they start glorifying the Lord as well. You know, it's interesting that in this covid season that we've been living in, we actually have experienced this to a certain degree. You know, there's been a lot of, you know, debate whether or not, you know, what's the best representation for the church? Should we be open or not open? Should we be meeting or not meeting? And for us as a church, after we talk to, you know, uh, some of our city officials and we talk to some of our sheriffs, and they're sharing with us how, you know, the domestic violence happening, you know, in our community is going through the roof. And drug and alcohol addiction is going through the roof. And suicides are taking place. And they're telling us, look, people are hurting all around us here that that led us to be like, we, we have to be open. We have to be meeting. We've got to be a place where people can come and be able to, to, to get their needs met and, and to meet Jesus and then interact with Jesus. And it's interesting that we have received nothing but positive feedback from our community, from unbelievers. That they've been really, really happy that we're here and we're doing what we're doing. And they drive by here on Wednesdays and they see 500 cars lined up in our parking lot and down the street because we're handing out, you know, boxes and boxes of food every single Wednesday for, you know, people who are needy in our community. And they see that. They drive by there honking like, yeah, good job. And, and it's encouraging. In fact, it's interesting. The only negative responses we've got and it's been really minimal, has actually been from Christians who just, you know, wrestle with it. And I get it. I understand the concerns. I, I get that, you know, a lot. But, but it's kind of coming to this place of agreeing to disagree that, hey, our heart is we feel like there's people hurting and we want to be here for them. And God has blessed that. And the community around us has been um, blessed by that. So I want to close with this analogy, kind of bringing what Peter is saying here all together. When I go on a missions trip, usually I go, it's like 8 to 12 days I'll go on a trip. I go knowing that my time in that country is going to be temporary. I go knowing that my time there is going to be short, And knowing that it's going to be short, knowing that it's temporary, I want to maximize my time in that country. I'm on a mission. That's why we call it a mission trip. We're there on a mission. And knowing that my time is short and wanting to maximize my time, when I go, the the whole idea of going and seeing some of the famous sights of that country is not even on my radar. I mean, if time permits and there's a you know opening in the schedule somewhere, and we get to do a little bit of that, great. But usually we don't. In fact, I've been to 23 different countries, and people come up to me, they'll hear I've been somewhere, and they say, "Hey, did you see such and such when you were there?" And I, my response is always, uh, "No, I didn't. Didn't have a chance." That's not why I'm there. I'm not there for sightseeing. We went there for people. We went there to bring Jesus to people. We went there to encourage believers in their walk with Jesus. And when we go on these trips, I'm not looking to get comfortable. In fact, I know almost every single time where we go, living out of a suitcase, that's going to be the norm. Because everywhere that we stay, it's usually pretty rough. And we know that it's going to be that way. And that's okay. Because our mentality is people. It's connecting with people, loving people, bringing people to Jesus. We know that it's going to be long days and long nights. We understand that it's going to be a battle. In fact, we prep our teams all the time. We say, look, need you to understand, the devil is not excited that we are going to this country. So he's going to be after you. He's going to be trying to divide us. He's going to be attacking us. And we're very, very mindful that we're there to represent Jesus and to represent the church that we're working with. So when I go on a mission trip, that is always my mentality. But here's what's interesting. It's interesting to me how easily that mentality changes the minute that our plane touches back down in the United States. And suddenly my focus changes from temporary to more permanent. From roughing it to more Comfortable. The first thing I'm thinking about all the time is, where's the closest in and out? You know, (laughs) I want a double double animal style. You know, I'm tired of this crazy food we've been eating all week at this crazy country. You know, and that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm thinking about. I I can't wait to get home and sleep in my own bed. I can't wait to get home and take a nice warm shower. That's what I'm thinking about. My focus shifts from a temporary mindset to a more permanent mindset. Now I want you to understand, there's nothing wrong with in and out. God bless them. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with seeking the comfort and enjoying the comfort of your house. Your house should be a refuge. Nothing wrong with those things. But we are called as pilgrims and sojourners. We are called as Christ representatives. We are called as those who are soldiers in the Lord's army. We are called to live on mission. And this is what the Lord was convicting me of this week. Me personally, my heart, as he was saying to me, Rob, you need to live here a little bit more consistently like you're on a mission trip. Now, I'm praying right now. Lord, show me what that looks like. Show me the balance. Show me what that means. Now, if that's a little convicting to you, I would encourage you to pray as well. To say, Lord, show me what that looks like for me to be on mission. To me to not be so comfort-seeking. To live on mission for you. One last thing. This is how God wants us to live. And you know who did this the best? It was Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate pilgrim. He said one day that, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's how he lived. Always moving and never getting comfortable. He was always on the go. He was the ultimate pilgrim. He was willing to be uncomfortable because he knew that he was on mission. He knew that he was here for the sole purpose of rescuing people who were in bondage to sin. He knew that he was here to redeem those who were lost. He was the ultimate pilgrim and sojourner. He was also the ultimate representative of the Father who had sent him. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I've come to only do one thing and my one focus is to do the will of him who sent me. So he was always, always mindful of the fact no, no matter where he went, what he did, that he was representing his father. But here's what's interesting about Jesus. In doing that, he still had this attractive aspect to him. Where well, it said that sinners and just normal people loved to be around him. And so he had this incredible balance of, I'm here to represent you know, my father, but he also enjoyed life. He was the ultimate representative. And he was also the ultimate soldier. He gave his life to conquer sin and death. I love the way... Paul put this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. This is from the New Living Translation. He says, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. That's the devil and his demons. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus, the ultimate soldier, the ultimate victor, he came to set us free from the penalty of sin. He did that by taking our place on the cross. He came to set us free from the power of sin, to release us from the bondage of sin that we could literally experience and walk in true freedom in Christ. And I want to say this as we close today. If you're here today and you're stuck in your sin, Jesus wants you to know that you can be set free. That's why he died. That's why he rose. That's why he lives and he can live inside of you. If you're here today and you recognize you know, I, I, he's right. I'm like Mick Jagger. I try and I try and I try and I just can't get any satisfaction. Why? Because it's only going to be found in that relationship with Jesus. And I want to encourage you today to open up your heart to Jesus. We're going to move right now into a time of partaking of communion together. Hopefully you received your little packet when you came in. The top of it has the cracker. It represents the body of Jesus that was given for us, that took the penalty that we deserved, that He went to the cross and He died in your place. The cup represents His blood that was shed for you to cleanse you of your sins. And we rejoice in that today. Jesus the ultimate pilgrim, the ultimate representative, the ultimate soldier that he came and he was victorious so that we now in him can walk and live in victory, that we can be strong in the Lord in the midst of the battle because he has already won the war. Amen? Amen. But I want to say this today. If you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you today to, to do so. What are you waiting for? You can have life. You can experience forgiveness of sin. You can experience your guilt being removed right now in this moment as you open up your heart to Jesus. In fact, the Bible does say this. It warns us about partaking of communion in what it calls is an unworthy manner. What does that mean? It means to know everything that Jesus did for you, but you don't want to follow him. No, it means that you know everything that Jesus did to pay the price for your sins, but you're content to live in your sins. And it says, if that's where you're at, don't partake. But the other option is, is to turn from your sin, turn to your Savior, and partake gladly today in the salvation that he offers to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the life that we have. Because, Jesus, you gave your life for us. You died and you rose so that we could be saved. And we could be forgiven. And we could have life. And we rejoice in that reality today. As we partake this morning or this afternoon now, Lord, for, of the bread and the cup, we do so with hearts full of gratitude for what you did for us. We rejoice, Lord, in your victory and knowing that it is our victory. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that has not yet opened up their heart to you, that they would do that right now. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you in the quietness of your own seat there, in the quietness of your own heart, just say this, say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Forgive me, cleanse me, come into my heart and make it your home. From this day forward, I want to follow you. I love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.